following is a presentation of Cornerstone Bible Church in Virginia Beach. For more information on Cornerstone, as well as additional sermon downloads, please visit cbcvirginia.com. You know, every Sunday is unique, every Sunday is different. Um, I've had people in the past ask me, so when you're studying for a message, like kind of what's your, what's your pattern, like how much time do you spend doing this or doing that, and I don't know if this will surprise you, but I'll give the answer to this publicly. Typically, understanding the content of a passage is normally the easiest part. Okay, you can go through the passage, study it, get your mind wrapped around its meaning. I find the much more difficult part of of public speaking and of preaching specifically is arranging it in such a way that it communicates easily, simply, memorably to the audience. I, I probably give about a third of my time to understanding content, about two-thirds of my time to arranging it and just trying to think through how do I teach it step by step to make sure that by the time I'm done, you went from point A to point B as I had hoped. Uh, I will say to you, and this is no exaggeration, there is no hyperbole in this, this message has been the absolute hardest experience of that I've ever had in eight years. Um, the material was a lot to cover. We're looking at divorce again today. For those of you who were here two weeks ago and heard the first part of this, uh, the, the material was a lot, but in the end, the material was actually the easiest part. Trying to think of a way to explain this topic to you in its entirety in 40 minutes or less has been incredibly difficult. So I'm going to ask, even as we read the scriptures here in a moment and pray that you Pray for yourself, pray for the people sitting next to you, that the Spirit will open their eyes to understand these things, because I feel like um, I perhaps have I've done the best I can do. I don't know if it's going to be good enough. We'll let the Spirit do the rest. Uh, hopefully you're in Mark 10. I don't know if I said that earlier. If you're not, please turn there, Mark chapter 10. We're going to read verses 1 to 12 again. Read it two Sundays ago. Read it again today, and then we're going to go to the Lord in prayer. If you're in Mark 10, please look at verse 1. And he, Jesus, left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again, and again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up, and in order to test him, asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the house, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Let's pray. Jesus, we are so thankful that in the end, your word and its power is not based on any presentation. It's not based on on any sermon by any person. It is truth and it is transformative just in and of itself. This is the power of God to salvation for all who believe. These are your inspired words. And so we just come and acknowledge that at the outset today, that we are 
we are embarking as we do each and every Sunday on, a, on an amazing journey to understand your mind. These are the very thoughts and words you wanted us to be able to read and study and understand and know of all the things that you could have told us, the, the, the things you've written in these 66 books of the Old and New Testament. These are the, the things that you felt were so important that you wrote them down for us. And so we approach your word this morning with awe and reverence. We approach it as, rec- as it is, as being your very words. It is divine, it is authoritative, it is supreme. We hopefully, in doing this, give honor and glory to you as the God whose words they are. And I pray this morning, Father, as we read them, as we think about this subject, that you will help us, that your spirit will, will open our eyes and our hearts, that you will do what no person can do in just a short period of time, just to give us the, a sense of your heart here on this matter. So that as we walk out today, we walk out having been transformed by your word to see the world as you see it, to see people as you see them, to love them as you've loved them, to live as your body here on this earth, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, today is the final installment in what has to be the most broken uh, up, disjointed series in the history of Cornerstone. This was supposed to have been originally a three-part sermon on the topic generally of divorce. Uh, the problem was is that the calendar didn't cooperate with us as we were originally thinking through going uh, through this passage. And so what's happened is we've had a week, and we had a week off, and we had a weekend, week off, and now today is the final, final message. That wasn't our desire. I can assure you of that, but that's just sort of what the circumstances demanded. We're, we're looking at this issue of divorce, which has been raised here by the Pharisees to Jesus. And, and two Sundays ago, I walked us through the immediate context of this specific passage. And even though I wish I could, I cannot really in any way go back and review any of that material with you. So if you were not here two Sundays ago, I'll be honest, you might be a little lost today and you might not understand some of the comments I'm going to make. I'm just going to have to trust you to go back and listen online for yourself. All I'm really going to do is here by way of introduction, remind those of you who were here two Sundays ago that this passage is not really a passage about divorce. Do you remember that? It's not really about divorce. It's about Jesus giving a practical, real example of how in his kingdom, the least will be the greatest, and the greatest will be the least. And and this is going to continue to be the main point all the way through the end of this second subsection here in chapter 10, verse 31. And so in this particular passage, the least are the women or the wives that are mentioned or addressed, referenced here by the Pharisees in this question. The the question is, can a man divorce his wife? Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? The emphasis, of course, being on the man, the woman being the the one who is receiving this action. She's the one subjected to it. Is this okay? And, And you have to remember in that question that women in Israel, in first century Israel, they had no rights. They had no voice. They're they're not quite to the level of just being property. That's probably pushing the, the, the envelope a little too far, but they're not far off of that. So, so they have nothing that they can turn to for help for themselves in these situa- situations. And the prevailing view in Jesus' day is that a husband has a fundamental, basic, innate right to divorce his wife whenever he wants for absolutely any reason under the sun. That's the, the context of the situation. And Jesus is rejecting that view here. 
And again, this is what I tried to show and explain two Sundays ago that you'll have to go back and understand. Because if you don't understand that context, and really nothing else here will make sense. Just, just remember, though, as we begin this morning, that the main point of this passage is, as I've said, it's not actually about divorce. It's actually about Jesus identifying with and protecting the least in this cultural context. And so in that sense, it's not, it's not about that. And yet, of course, <laughs> it is about that. It is about divorce simply because that is the specific issue that is raised by the Pharisees in their attempt to trap Jesus in his words and, as I showed you last time, try to get him killed. That's really what they're going, excuse me, going for here, I think. And, and, and that's something we have to remember as well. Jesus is being asked a hostile question by hostile people in hostile territory. If you don't remember that as well, you're going to get lost. They're not asking this question here out of a genuine curiosity about the subject. They're not sincere learners. They're not there trying to gain information so that they can please God more and understand him better and respond to him better. There's no sincerity on their part here. They are trying, I believe, to get Jesus killed by his answer. And so, knowing this, he answers their hostile question in light of that. As I mentioned last time then, what you have to, to understand is that Jesus isn't attempting to say everything that could or should be said about the subject of, of divorce in this one passage. I mean, if you're under attack by the hostile question, put yourself in his shoes. You're, you're, you're maybe in some modern context, you're a politician and you've gone into a, a, a rough situation, a rough uh, crowd, a rough audience who's not with you, and they're asking you questions that you know, you know are designed to, to try to get you to say something or do something that you don't want to do. How would you respond? Would you be like, overly forthcoming with information? Would you try to say a lot of words so that they have all kinds of things to hang on? Probably not. You're probably going to be wise and judicious in your word choice and your thoughts and your answer and your response. And that's exactly what you see Jesus doing here. And that reality is as critical to our understanding this morning as, as anything else. These verses that we've read this morning are not everything that God has to say about Divorce, And I'm going to show you that right now, right here in Mark. Last time we were here, two weeks ago, we ended our study here in verses 5 through 9. This is Jesus' recorded public response to the Pharisees' question. And his words to them are, verse 5, Because of your hardness of heart, he wrote you this commandment. But from the beginning of creation, God made them male and female. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So they are no longer two, but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. Now, pause. This is all that Mark records of this interchange between Jesus and the Pharisees out in this public setting, wherever Jesus was, he's out teaching somewhere in the wilderness, and this is where they come up, so the context of this conversation is there. This is all he says to them, that the Pharisees ask a very specific and hostile question. Jesus gives a very specific and wise answer. And if the passage stopped right here, we might be tempted to think that that was all there was to this topic. And yet, of course, it doesn't. Because in the very next verse, we read that in the house, then, the disciples asked him again about this matter. So just, you know, picture the scenario. Some amount of time has elapsed, hours, minutes, it doesn't really matter. 
They've left the public setting. They've gone into someone's house to spend the night. They're all sitting around the table. Some of them are playing Sudoku, whatever. They got, there's some, they're busy. And then one of the disciples is like, uh, hey, Jesus, I got a question. Remember that, remember that question earlier that the Pharisees asked you about, about divorce? Can you maybe, I don't know, elaborate on that a little bit more? So, so some time has passed here. Jesus has given one answer publicly. Time has passed. And here's like, sure, yeah, let me, let me give you some more information. He says to them, verse 11, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. Wait, 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 wait. Th- this is new information since the conversation just a few hours prior. Notice I didn't say it's different information. It's not like it's against what was said earlier. It's just additional. It, it's more that's being added now because the disciples are asking, I think genuinely, here for more, for more information, which illustrates to me two important points that you have to understand from the outset this morning in order to process really the rest of the material we're going to look at. Point number one is the point I've already made in part, but I'll make it in full now. You see from this, there is no one single passage of Scripture that will tell you everything you need to know about the topic of divorce. Not one. There's no, like, I can't give you the verse. Like, here's your verse, put it in your pocket, and any time the topic of divorce comes up, pull it out, that's your answer, right? There, there's no one single topic because God, for whatever reason, doesn't choose to reveal everything that he says or thinks about divorce in one specific place. You can look all you want. It's just, just not there. And if you try to pick just one, I will guarantee you, I don't even have to know which one you're going to pick, I will guarantee you you're going to end up in the wrong place. You just can't do that. You can't just cherry pick the one you like the best and go from there. There are many passages that talk about divorce in one way or another. And and I had at one point, if I could just kind of go off on a little quick rabbit trail, I had at one point thought maybe I could actually cover them (laughs) all in one setting. Uh, And then reality hit me like a ton of bricks. That even, I mean, I don't know if I could read them all in 40 minutes. I had much less talk about what they're they're trying to say. So so you you just can't do it. There's too many to cover at one setting. And you you just gotta recognize that there's no one passage. The second point that I think this illustrates is that whenever we're reading passages of scripture, particularly in in sections of narrative, narrative is story, things like the gospels where they're telling the story of Jesus, okay? Particularly in passages of narrative, understand that the gospel writers are being selective in what they choose to write. In other words, I would love to have been in the house and heard everything that was said about this question. I have a feeling that what's occurring here is that Jesus is like, sure, let me answer the question, and he begins to talk. And he says this, and he says that, and he says this, and he says that, and the conversation goes on for some length of time. Maybe there's questions back, maybe there's dialogue. And yet, what does Mark give us? Two sentences. You know, this, this is not just true of this passage of divorce. This is true of all the gospel passages. You'll read the same story in Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and each of them records the, the scenario a little different way. Why are they doing that? Well, it's because they're all giving you a synopsis of what occurred, what transpired, what was taught. Imagine, if you will, for example, that on your way out this morning, there is a person standing at the door who pulls ten of you aside and says, tell me what today's sermon was about. 
Is there anyone in here with a um, photographic memory who can give a verbatim, full-text uh, uh, description of everything I said? Probably not. So what are you going to do when you are asked that question? You're going to summarize. You're going to pull out a sentence, an idea, a thought, a point, an illustration, something that will, in your mind, give a sense of what today's message was about. You see a lot of the same thing happening in the Gospels. The writers are trying to give a, a, a point, a synopsis, a, a little encapsulated statement to help you get the gist of what's going on in any given scenario or story. And so even when we have direct statements by Jesus, like the one we have here in verses 10 and 11, it's still not everything that could be said. <laughs> do, do you understand what I'm getting at here? Do you understand the point I'm, I'm trying to illustrate? There's just, there's just a lot here. And so so what that means for us then is that if we're attempting to get a big picture understanding of a, of a topic, whether it's divorce or any other, fill in the blank, we have to search the entire scriptures to see everything that the Bible says and then build our understanding on that. And of course, the problem today is there's just too much. And this, as I said, has been the most difficult sermon I've ever tried to compile. Uh, eight years. I, it's the hardest one for me to put together because there's such a broad amount of, of information to try to compact into 40 minutes. So I'm going to do the best I can, but in the end, what I've decided to do is to not in any way, shape, or form attempt to walk us through all the passages. I'm not even going to walk us through all the big ones. I'll mention a couple in passing, and everything I say is based off the totality of them all. Understand that as best you can, and if at the end of all of this you have a a question or something that I haven't covered, a specific passage you want to talk about, I'm making myself available. I'm getting ready to leave on vacation, so this is a safe bet. But email me, and I'll get back to you when I return in two weeks. But anyway, uh, no, no, I want, I want you to understand I'm not, I'm not trying to avoid things. I'm just having to make choices, and I hope you will understand that. So one more thing, and then we'll begin. Last time... I began by acknowledging what I think are just two realities for this topic. Uh, one was that there's everyone in this room, there's not a single person in this room here who has not been impacted by divorce in one way or another. Okay? Some of you are directly impacted by divorce. You personally have been divorced. You're sitting in here today as a divorced person. Uh, others of you, like myself, have not personally been divorced, but you are indirectly impacted nonetheless. Your parents have been divorced, your siblings have been divorced, your children have been divorced, friends, family, co-workers, neighbors. <laughs> there's no way that we, we, we don't have people, there's no one in this room who hasn't been impacted by that, and we've tried to be sensitive to that along the way. Secondly, I acknowledged last Sunday that everyone who comes in this room also has certain preconceived notions about the topic. You, you brought them in. You didn't even know you brought them in, but you had them in tow when you walked in. Some of you are probably very impacted by the world's understanding of divorce. That divorce is like no big deal, do it if you want, you know, it's your life, your thing, whatever. Others of you are maybe more impacted by some Christian view of divorce, and man, that's a spectrum in and of itself of where people fall there. And what we asked you last time was to please do your best to lay all of that aside as best as you can to let the scriptures speak for themselves. Well, today I want to point out a third reality that I think is as true as the first two and is just as, um, has just as much of an impact as the other two do. And that's this, that in the end, I think everybody wants a black and white answer on this question. I say that because we're humans 
And most of us want a black and white answer on every question of life. Um, we, we want certainty. In fact, I will share a little bit of kind of my own personal journey here through this. I wanted that same kind of answer when I started studying this topic back in February. I've been working on this for a while now. Um, I came to this topic with certain preconceived notions where I was leaning in, in my own thoughts or my own past and background, teaching that I've heard, things I've read, etc. So I had a, a certain expectation, a certain preconception. I, I wanted a, a, a thorough black and white answer. You know, it was divorce and remarriage always wrong. Boom. There, easy, right? Or is it always right? Or is it always wrong or always right within certain, like, circumstances or situations or, ex, you know, exceptions, etc. I, I wanted some kind of, of grid work, of, of some kind of codifiable answer, that's how I've thought of it, where I could just build this thing and then plop it down on any scenario that I came across so that when I looked at it, I'm like, oh, does it fit here? Does it fit? Nope. Oh, gone. Oh, no, it's in. Okay, good. We're good to go. Like, that's, that's what I wanted. Um, but I'll be honest with you, after months of studying, I couldn't find it. Uh, at least not across the board. And so the best I can give you this morning, and this is where we're starting now, are five principles that I think should guide our thinking and response to the issue of divorce. And doing this, please understand, I am trying to summarize and systemize everything that the Bible says in a very high-level way. Again, if you have questions, come to me. But these five principles will, I hope, at least give us a, a path a way of processing situations that we run across, whether as individuals, as families, as a church, etc., to help us make good, biblical, faithful decisions that are obviously faithful to God and thoughtful to others as well. Here are the principles. The first two are pretty simple, and I hope hopefully pretty obvious, but I'm not going to pretend that everyone understands them. Number one, God's intention for marriage is one man and one woman for life. Principle number one, God's intention for marriage is one man, one woman for life. This is why we asked Chris to, like six weeks ago now, in the first part of this uh, three-part series here, to begin by taking us into Genesis, to simply remind us of God's original plan and intention for marriage. And we're doing that also because of what Jesus does here. I won't take us back into it again but that is the very point of Jesus' response here in verses 5 through 9. He's pointing out to them that the intention of God from the garden was that a man would love his wife, make her his own, love her, protect her, view her as being part of himself until, until the day they died. That was God's plan. And in saying that, we're having to acknowledge, I believe, or at least um, we should be acknowledging, that that means then that marriage belongs to God, not to man. This is his thing, not ours. We don't get to define it. We don't get to, to uh, uh, put conditions on it, etc. He has done this. Jesus even references that when he says that God has joined them together. And because of that, no one should separate. No man should separate. In 1 Corinthians 7, verse 7, which I'm not going to put on the screen, but if you should write it down because this is kind of important, I think. Paul refers to both marriage and singleness, both states, as being gifts from God. And his word choice here is interesting because the word he uses for gift there in 1 Corinthians 7, 7, 
is the word charisma. Now, you think you know the word charisma because if we meet someone who's really outgoing, very friendly, we'd say that person has a lot of charisma. They're very charismatic. They're, they're a really good personality, that kind of thing. That's, that's not the, the word here. The, the Greek word for grace, the grace you get from God, is the word charis. Okay, so this is describing that undeserved favor, that kindness that no one merits, no one earns, no one deserves, that is given by God to men. It's a divine thing to receive the grace of God. Charis, charisma is a grace gift. Okay, charis is grace, charisma is a grace gift. It's referring to something that only God can give. Something that that is divinely bestowed by God, not because you earn it, not because you deserve it, but simply because God wants to give it to you. There are only three things in the New Testament that the word charisma is used for. The first one, big surprise, is salvation. Salvation is that uh, wages of sin or death, but the free gift of God is eternal. That's the word charisma. This free gift of God is is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. Salvation is referred to throughout the New Testament as a gracious gift by God. Not one earned or deserved by man, simply bestowed at God's good favor. The second thing it's used to refer to are what we call spiritual gifts. If you've ever read or heard anything about that subject, that's one of the words that's used. Not, Not natural talents and abilities that people possess beforehand. These are gracious gifts that God bestowed on his church, particularly there in Acts, to go out and spread the gospel throughout that world, particularly, I think, before the the scriptures were finished. So, So these were charismas, grace gifts given. The third and final category is marriage and singleness. That marriage is not one, an institution, both or singleness as well, but I'm not really going to deal with that one. Marriage is not an institution that you earn or deserve. Do you realize that if you're sitting here today and you're married, it's because that's God's gift to you? Like your spouse is in that sense literally God's gift to you. Some of you wives should go home and beat your husbands over the head with that today, right? You're God's gift to your husband, but sorry, your husband is also, you're also God's, wait, hold on. (laughs) Whatever, just keep it, ladies. I don't know. You do what you want with that one. Uh, I point this out just simply to show us that throughout the New Testament, marriage, the institution of marriage is presented to us as not just something that is whimsically chosen by a man or a woman. You you may not understand or fully see how the sovereign hand of God has been at work in bringing you to your spouse. I'm telling you today, though, it has been. It's not just something you fell into. It's not just a romantic uh, arrangement that you agreed to one day in a romantic ceremony. No, 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 no. Marriage is God's gift, his grace gift to us. And and so if his intention for marriage then is that one man and one woman should be together for life, then guess what? That intention needs to reign supreme in our hearts and minds no matter what. That's the first principle, okay? Understand that. Here's the second principle. Sin is always at the root of divorce, Sin is always at the root of divorce. And notice that I'm not assigning any blame with this statement, and I think the group of people in this room who would jump up and say, amen, brother, the most are the people who have been through it. I'm simply acknowledging a reality that whenever you see a situation where divorce has occurred, you pull back the the layers of the onion, sin is always going to be involved somewhere, either with one or both parties. 
It's, it's, it's always in nature. Jesus says as much here in verse 5, responding to their quoting of Deuteronomy 24. He says, it was because of your hardness of heart that Moses wrote you this commandment. It's because you guys have such sinful hearts that, that Moses had to write this commandment to you here in Deuteronomy. He's acknowledging that divorce was allowed, but, but only because of sin. And I, and I point this out, again, not to to rub salt in a wound because I don't intend it to be the case. I intended just to acknowledge the truth that, that sin is always at the root of divorce, just like it is always at the root of anything and everything else that is contrary to God's intention for mankind. Okay? It's not just true of divorce. It's true of anything that goes against what God has laid out as his plan. And there could be many, many different things I could point out here just as an example for us to, to think through, but I tried to, to summarize this into two kind of main categories that I'll just generally throw out there. I think they'll be pretty clear, so I'm not going to develop them much. But I think the two categories that you'll pretty much always see in a situation where divorce has occurred is either A, no repentance, or B, no forgiveness. Or both, okay? One or the other, or both. That you have a, a, a spouse who has engaged in sinful behavior and a sinful lifestyle, sinful response, sinful reactions toward the other spouse, and this has led, and, and there's no change, there's, despite trying, despite pleas, despite prayers, despite tears, despite counseling, there's been no change. And that lack of repentance has, in the end, boom, led to divorce. And or, both can go together, you've got a situation where sin has occurred, and perhaps change has been uh, a sought and has, has been achieved, perhaps there has been an attempt at reconciliation, but there's no forgiveness. And because of the bitterness that ensues in the heart of one or the other spouse, divorce occurs. You, you see that, okay? I'm generalizing, and I'm going a thousand miles an hour, but I hope you can understand the, what I'm trying to get at here, the bigger points of what I'm making, that you're always going to find some combination of this somewhere under the surface of what's going on, and, and that's just a reality. These first two principles are, in a sense, then, the easy ones, right? Because, because I'd hope that everyone who desires to be faithful to God's word would at least be able to acknowledge these, really without hesitation or complaint. It's the next three, though, are, uh, that have really shaped my view the most. Third principle is this. I'm going to say it, and you've got to hold on. Let me explain. When God had the chance to forbid divorce for all time, he passed. Um, I'm referring here to this passage that the Pharisees themselves referred to in Deuteronomy 24. I mean, as we looked at this last time, I showed you how the Pharisees had, and the people of Jesus' day, it's not just this one group, it's the whole culture, really, how they had twisted this passage of Scripture to give men the right to discard their wives at any time for any reason they wanted. But I also took the time last Sunday to show you that that was not Moses' intention at all. That they truly had been twisting the text to end up where they had ended up. In fact, as I tried to explain at least quickly last time, the situation here in Deuteronomy seems to be that there are men who, for whatever reason, decide that they're tired of their wives, they want to get a new wife, different wife, something, right? And so they would accuse her of some impurity. Hey, I found out that she slept with her boyfriend before we got married, and, and therefore, you know, I'm out of this one. 
And so they would send her away. So now she goes off and she's got nothing because legally, technically in their culture, she's still married, but now she's been accused of this moral deficiency or failure. And so now the husband, because he's got this place in culture, he can marry again, but she can't. She's stuck. She's in limbo. What can she do? And it didn't even have to be a true accusation. He could just throw it out there if he wanted. So what Moses is saying here is, all right, all right, listen, if you want to say this, you can say it, but you have to write her the certificate. You have to write her the certificate, say you're done with her because later you can't say, no, you got to come back. You're still my wife, right? I mean, I, I married this other woman for a while and got rid of her. And now you got to come back because no, 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 no. You can't do that. You're going to send her away. You're done with it. Write a certificate, set her free. She can go marry someone else now. You can never go back. Okay, that's the, that's the intention of Moses to protect these women who are being discarded by their husbands. But it was as I was studying this passage that something profound occurred to me, which doesn't happen very often, so I, I, I took note. While this response is certainly effective at stopping the problem at hand, a far easier, less complicated solution would have been to have just outlawed divorce completely. Right? You got a problem here, you know, the scenario, these women are being mistreated. Moses comes up with this, like, I mean, he sounds like me and Jordan thinking about how to do things, right? He's like, we should make the three steps, and you got to do this. And um, a far easier solution would have just been to say, nope, no divorce ever, the end. You're God's people, and because you're God's people, you should never have been, you should never divorce. And, and, and it's not like God hasn't done this before, right? It's like, no, you can murder if you give him a certificate of murder, you know. And <laughs> No, it's just like no murder, no lying, no theft, no adultery. There are lots of things, both big and small, that God outlawed completely. We should never do them. They're wrong. They're sin. And so here's the moment. Here's the moment where, I mean, since he hadn't taken the opportunity beforehand, God could just step in and say, nope, divorce is always wrong for my people. should never happen. The end. And he passes. And, and he, he puts an end to the societal wrong, yes, the sinful way that the men were treating their, their wives, but there's no thou shalt not divorce, nor if we were to go further into the passage, which we don't have time to do, I explained what the rest of the passage is uh, last, uh, last time, nor does he say thou shalt not remarry. In fact, the remainder of this passage is built around the supposed scenario that the wife who's been sent away is now free to remarry, that in fact she will remarry, that she'll go on and pursue this new life with a new husband and that the old husband can't now call her back. God had a chance here to forbid both things forever, and he doesn't. Now, if you are in any way, shape, or form a student of logic and debate and, and just good communication skills, you know that in a sense what I'm doing here is I'm building an argument from silence right? I mean, God doesn't also say divorce is great. <laughs> He's clearly not making that point, but I'm just simply making the point that he had a chance to forbid it, and he didn't. And that's significant to me. Does that mean, that because I'm making an argument from some silence here, is it invalid? I don't, I don't think so, because he's not silent on the subject as a whole. Not either here or throughout the rest of the scriptures, and yet not, so, so then not forbidding it to me stands it stands out as being sort of significant to my thinking. In fact, just again, personally, as I kept reading and studying since February and I kept like, wrestling with this, I couldn't get away from that point. Why? Why wouldn't God forbid it? Right here, if he wanted to, this was the easy spot. 
Just like he'd forbid all the other things that he could have, you know, he chose to forbid. Why not? Why didn't he forbid this one? And I don't know that this is the answer, though I think Jesus is, is certainly, uh, his comment there in Matthew 10 would give credence to it, but I think he just because he knows how sinful <laughs> we humans are. And there could be, even though it's not his original intention, there could apparently be situations where maybe divorce really is the best thing for a family. I know that sounds crazy, and I probably am going to get fired for saying it, but I'm just, I'm being honest with the text going, he could have forbade it, and he didn't. Is forbade the right word? He could have forbade it, forbade it, forbidden it, and he didn't. He knows that the sinful heart of man is the root problem here, not the act of divorce. You got that? The sinful heart of man is the problem here not the act of divorce, and there is no law that can change the heart. <laughs> there never has been, and there never will be. Not in the Old Testament, in the New, or anywhere else. So it is perhaps possible that God saw that in some scenarios, divorce might actually be the better option given the sinfulness of man, and that's why he chooses not to forbid it here in all my study, as I said, I have not been able to get away from this point that he had the chance and he passed. However, there is another countering principle that I also can't get away from. That's number four. That the gospel should dramatically change our view of both marriage and divorce. I mean, dramatically change our view of both of these things. I mean, in terms of marriage, yes, it's still God's intention. We... <laughs> We say that, affirm that, it never changes. But, but as Paul shows us in Ephesians 5, marriage is actually more than that even. It's, it's supposed to be a picture of the gospel at work. It's supposed to be a picture of, of the union between Christ and his church where husbands are supposed to be loving their wives not simply as their own flesh, though that is still true, but they are actually supposed to be loving their wives like Christ loved the church and gave himself for her. Loving her sacrificially and graciously and redemptively and all those five things that Gary Ricucci says in chapter 2 of Love That Last. I love that book. It's just true that it's supposed to be a picture. My love for Jamie is supposed to be a picture of Jesus' love for me. And if I'm not living up to that, that's a, that's a problem in and of itself. Similarly, my wife's love for me or all wives' love wives love their husbands, that love, their love and submission to their husbands is supposed to be reflective of how the church is supposed to love and submit to, to Christ. This marriage relationship now is no longer just a, it sounds weird to say it like this, it's no longer just a matter of God's intention, though it still is that. It's now a matter of the gospel. It's now a matter of a picture of what Jesus is doing with us as he makes us his own, makes us his body, makes us his church. He becomes one with us all of that is being changed, enhanced, viewed even a little differently through the lens of the gospel. The gospel changes our view of marriage, but guess what? It also changes our view of divorce. You know, th this is best shown to us in 1 Corinthians 7, that passage I've already mentioned, in verses 10 to 16. Paul here, this whole chapter is written about, really, relationship issues for us as believers, okay, if I could just summarize it in a very simple way, it's about relationship issues for us as believers, and he covers all kinds of different points here for people who are single, for people who are married, for people who are engaged, but they're not married yet, like, I mean, he's got 
all kinds of stuff going on here. And in verse 10, he speaks to married believers. Okay, it doesn't say married believers, but it's the context. Married believers. He says, to the married believers, I give this charge. And notice he says, not I, but the Lord. The wife should not separate from her husband. But if she does, she should remain unmarried or else be reconciled to her husband. And the husband should not divorce his wife. Notice again, he's talking to believers. He's talking to couples where both the husband and the wife claim to be genuine believers in Jesus. They claim to be genuinely converted by the gospel. And in that scenario where you've got a husband and a wife, both of whom are claiming to be genuine believers, Paul's saying no divorce, none. Separation, maybe if needed, but divorce is not allowed. And you go, well, why? Why would the fact that they're both believers, or at least both claiming to be believers, change the way that's viewed from perhaps maybe how it was seen in the Old Testament? Well, it's because of this, I'd say, because the lack of repentance and the lack of forgiveness that is always at the root of divorce is totally antithetical to the gospel and should never be true of genuine believers. It should never be true of genuine believers. I mean, how can a genuine believer live in unrepentant sin? I mean, this isn't just a divorce question. <laughs> you recognize that, right? This is a parenting question and a personal question. And I mean, How do we who claim to know Jesus continue to, to sin? Romans 6, Paul says, how can we who died to sin still live in it? When we get that we're always sinning, we get that we're never going to be perfect in this life, and yet there should be a a sense of contrition and, and, and genuine repentance, a desire to confess, to change, to pursue sanctification in the heart of any true, genuine believer. And if you don't see that in someone's life, it makes you go, hmm, why aren't they willing to change? Why aren't they willing to, to, to pursue Christ, to pursue sanctification, to walk away from sin? What, what's going on here? How does a genuine believer continue in that? Or conversely, how can a genuine believer not forgive? I mean, we have been completely forgiven of all of our sin by God. Every last bit of it, gone. Nailed to the cross forever. Never held against us again. And, and our sins against God are of an eternal magnitude, right? They're, they're enough to warrant hell itself. And yet, God, in his grace and mercy to us, is willing to say, I'll forget it forever. As far as the east is from the west, your sins are removed from me. They are buried in the deepest sea, and I will never bring them up to you again. There is now no condemnation. That's what we have received. This utter, total, complete, forever, eternal, permanent, gracious, loving, merciful forgiveness of God. And yet we want to hold other sins against them. Again, this is not just a divorce question. <laughs> this is a family question. This is a friend question, a neighbor question. A, really? You're happy. You're praising God. You're raising your hands this morning because you're singing these songs about God's complete forgiveness of your sins, and yet in your heart you're holding bitterness against who? Do you see the problem? Th this is why I'm asking again the question, how can a genuine believer not forgive? I, I get that we struggle. I'm not trying to make you doubt your salvation, believe me. I just... 
This is simply why I'm saying to you, though, that the lack of of repentance and forgiveness is antithetical to the gospel. It just doesn't work. And as such, two genuine believers should have no reason to pursue divorce. Should. (laughs) If they're genuine. These are a lot of questions, a lot of terms we need to define along the way here that, again, we can't. This this is that both parties, though, are genuine believers. But what if maybe only one party is? What do you do then? You know, both may claim to be or not be believers, but, but what if only one of the spouses is a, is a true believer? Well, Paul answers that well. He, here in verse 12, he says, To the rest I say, and I want you to note this phrase here. He says, I, not the Lord. On the last one he said, not I, but the Lord. Okay, he's giving God's direction on the first point. Shouldn't happen if you're both genuine believers. Now, different scenario. One's a believer, one's not. Let me give you my opinion, Paul says that if any brother has a wife who is an unbeliever and she consents to live with him, he should not divorce her. Uh, If any woman has a husband who is an unbeliever and he consents to live with her, she should should not divorce him. So scripture is clear here, I think, that a believer should not knowingly marry an unbeliever. Okay, I didn't really address that earlier, but I'm throwing that out now. Pretty sure that's a a, a no-go there. If you're a believer, you shouldn't be marrying an unbeliever. So this is either a scenario where that command has been ignored or B, where both were unbelievers at the time they got married and one has subsequently become a believer or C, where both, both parties claim to be believers at the time of marriage but one of them has now proven that they are not. Okay, those are your three options. They ignored the command not to marry an unbeliever. They were both unbelievers. One got saved. They both claimed to be saved. One proved that they weren't. If possible, Paul says, they should stay married. And the reason that Paul gives for this is the gospel, verse 14, which I'm not going to show you right now, but you read on your own. It's that maybe through the influence, the words, the example of the believing spouse, the unbelieving spouse may come to Christ. That'd be the best possible scenario. So if possible, he's saying they should stay together. But what if the unbeliever wants to leave? Well, verse 15, Paul writes, the unbelieving partner separates, then let it be so. In such cases, the brother or sister is not enslaved. Note those words. God has called you to peace. So, so if we have a scenario where only one is a believer, the other is an unbeliever, now the situation changes. He's saying to the believing spouse here, you should not pursue divorce necessarily. Divorce necessarily is, but if the other person does, you're not bound. You're not enslaved. And those words there are very interesting, a very interesting choice on Paul's part because these are the same words, the same ideas that are used to explain how a person whose spouse has died is now free to remarry. Okay? Romans, Romans chapter 7 is an example. Paul uses it there that if a, if a woman has been married to her husband, she is bound to her husband for as long as he lives, but if he dies, she is now free. To marry another. She's no longer enslaved, no longer bound to do this, to, the, to, to honor that marriage covenant to the deceased spouse. This is the same type of wording that he uses here. And as such, I personally think that believers whose unbelieving spouses have left them are generally free to remarry. And I say that generally because I think each situation is unique and should be considered individually. There's no codifiable system or framework we can throw over every scenario. Which leads to number five, fifth principle, final principle, that godly discretion, biblical wisdom, 
and dependence on the Spirit are critical in this conversation. The godly discretion, biblical wisdom, and dependence on the Spirit are critical because understand these are, by and large, principles, not rules. The, the, the only black and right, white rule I see here in the text is regarding two genuine believers. That's the only one I can find. That's like hardcore, this is what you have to do. You are not allowed to divorce. You can separate, but if you do, you got to be reconciled or stay separated. Those are your options, Paul says there. God, he's like, not I, the Lord is saying this. Understand that. You get outside of that specific scenario, and there's a, there's a lot of gray. There is no one size fits all answer for every situation. And discretion is needed. And I think you even see Paul trying to exercise that kind of discretion as an example to us in 1 Corinthians 7, verses uh, 12 and following, where he says, look, this is me, not the Lord. I'm giving you my counsel, what I think is wise and discerning based on what I see in the scriptures and how I understand the gospel. I, I think he's trying to exercise wisdom. I think he's trying to exercise dependence on the Spirit because we know, of course, that the, the Spirit is the one driving his writing of that. And, and I think as such, it's going to look different from situation to situation. I was going to give some examples, but I am out of time. So here's some thoughts, okay? Take these five principles. Let me give you a few concluding thoughts with them. Number one, for those of you in here who are maybe on the verge of divorce, and I would be shocked if there's not a couple an individual in this room who does not fall in that camp given even just this small size. I want you to know that the gospel restores broken people, broken lives, and broken marriages. The gospel is the only hope for your marriage, just like it's the only hope for mine. Okay? Do you understand this? There's no hope for you in a marriage counselor per se. There's no hope for you in a guru. There's no book you can turn to. There's no person you can... Uh, you need the gospel. If your marriage is falling apart, you need the gospel. Hey, and if your marriage is healthy, you need the gospel. <laughs> it doesn't really matter really where your marriage is at on that spectrum. It, it, it's, it's the gospel. It's the only hope for your marriage. And this isn't just in times of crisis. It's, it's needed every day. But this is just a, a truism. This is just a pragmatic observation from me. So don't take this any further than that. My experience, limited as it is, my observation it seems to me that the couples who wait until the moment of crisis to come to me or the elders for help don't generally fare well. I'm not saying there isn't hope at that moment. There is. There's always hope. The gospel is always the hope. I'm just saying to you, practically, observationally, the couples who wait to the moment of crisis to come and seek God's help, it's generally too late. You, you don't want to wait till the time of crisis. You want to be pursuing Jesus in your marriage now. If your marriage is great, praise God, pursue Jesus now so that when the crisis hits, and it will, you've got a foundation built. Um, this is also why the church family is so important because you need others in your life. Again, it seems to me observationally only, this is not biblical, just my experience, that the couples who have the least chance of, of making it through those times in crisis are the ones who are the most removed from the church. The ones who are the most plugged in, the most connected, have friends and family who are believers around them, loving them, helping them, seem to have the best chances. I hate using the word chances, but I don't know how else to say it here. Just the best chances of, of making it through that crisis. It, observational only. I'm telling you now that the gospel is your only hope. Number two. 
For those of you in here who have been divorced, I want you to understand you are not second-class citizens of the kingdom of God. Because I fear too often the church has come across not as, as uh, a group of people who are there to help and love and care and they're there to like rub salt in wounds and like make it worse. And I don't understand why. I think it's just because we're so sinful and wicked. I just want you to understand that you're not second-class citizens because the reality is there are no second-class citizens in the kingdom. I don't care what our past is. We're all viewed as perfectly spotless, holy, and pure in the blood of Jesus. It doesn't matter what's in our past. Now, that doesn't absolve some of you, perhaps, of the need to repent and forgive. I'm not saying that to, to, again, be mean. I'm just saying it honestly. If you've been in here and you're the cause of your divorce, you're the, you're the, the offending party, you need to repent. You may need to go and pursue forgiveness. You may need to go and make some changes and do some things. You, if you're a genuine believer, you, you, you can't just continue living in your unrepentant sin. Be warned. And if you're a genuine believer and you're not the offending party, you were the offended party, you need to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. You're not free to hold that bitterness against them forever because you were genuinely wronged. I'm not taking that away from you. You may have been genuinely sinned against. It doesn't change your need to forgive as Christ has forgiven you. That doesn't necessarily mean that former marriages need to be restored. Maybe that's the case in some scenarios. Again, everyone is so different, it's hard to just drop a one-size-fits-all answer there, but but again, it means that you have to do the things that the gospel demands of you personally and see where the Spirit takes it. Regardless, though, I just want you to understand in Jesus, you're perfectly sinless and holy in God's eyes, and you need to live now in light of that. Number three, then, for all of us, I think there is a call here to let the Scriptures reign supreme and to rely on the God of grace in all things. Because the temptation with all of this is for you to walk out, and again, I have flown at like 10,000 miles an hour, and I'm sorry. Temptation now is to walk out and say, yeah, I don't agree, and just whatever. Just go on. And I'm telling you, don't trust me because it's me. Don't trust me just because I'm, like, I'm up here a lot, but I'm not like just come to this out of nothing. Like, I, I actually was kind of leaning bef- at the beginning of all this to the no divorce ever side, if you want to know the honest truth about it. And I've had to kind of pull back on that some and go, wait a minute, but what do the scriptures say? The scriptures have to be supreme, not my thoughts, not my preconceived notions, no, no, no. And what you're hearing today is sort of a very high-level view of that. And I'm going to ask you to, as you go out and think about this and read and ask questions and talk about it, let the scriptures reign supreme. And in all things, in all things, rely on the God of grace to help us through the difficulties of, of these scenarios. Folks, there is probably no more messy, painful, hard scenarios that you're going to have to deal with, particularly on the relational side, than when divorce is occurring. It's your friends, it's your brothers, sisters, neighbors, co-work, whatever, and you're going to be hearing it, and you're going to see the pain and the hurt, and there's going to be kids, and they're going to be crying, and it's going to be bad. <laughs> like, it's not funny, it's, it's hard, and it's terrible. And in those moments, how are you going to respond? What are you going to do? You've got to think through this stuff. Think through what the hope of marriage is. Think through what the, what the only hope of change is. If we as the church can't be that to the people around us, then what hope do they have? Will you bow your heads? Father, I feel like this has been a 
too fast, too much kind of message, and I am relying on you now to take these very high-level principles that we've looked at this morning and, and let them filter down. It's so hard for us, Lord, because we want black and white. We want codifiable systems that say it's always this or it's never that, and, and that just doesn't seem to be the case generally in the scriptures. You have told, that it, told us that if we're believers, that divorce is not an option for us and our spouse, our believing spouse, and yet we recognize that life doesn't always work out so cleanly and neatly. Even Paul is addressing that here. Uh, we've got unbelievers around us who have no hope in the gospel, no knowledge of you, and they're living their life in the world. It's just, there's, this is such a mess. And so our hope comes back to you, to the God of grace, to enable us to respond biblically, lovingly, courageously even, to the scenarios that you put in our path, to resist those urges to just react to things based on our desires to have like certainties here and there, but rather to have biblical discernment and godly wisdom and be in, led by your spirit to engage each individual scenario as its own, to see how you've worked, how you're working, and what we should do still. Father, if we are not the body of Christ to the hurting people around us who have gone through the pain of divorce, then, then who will help them? And so help us to have hearts that love, that reach out, that care, that show the concern that you have for them so that they can know that the free forgiveness and love that is available in you. Thank you, Jesus, for your word. It's in your name we pray. Amen.